welcome to Cornerstone Community Church. It's uh, nice to feel a little bit of that cool weather starting to move in, isn't it? Yeah. After some hot days, and uh, we just got back from vacation this past week in Branson, and uh, just kind of felt like a nice, calm family time uh, before the busy storm of the fall ministry season and school and everything that's going on. And uh, so I've uh, prepared a message this morning in Philippians chapter three. Uh, as you're turning in there, I uh, would like to just share a few things about the Awana ministry. Uh, we're doing Awana, as it was mentioned, this year only with Olivet Baptist Church at Olivet. They've offered their facilities to us for free. Uh, they've offered to let us run the ministry, and they're just coming alongside uh, with some leaders to help with it and their kids. And so we are expecting somewhere between 50 and 70 kids each week. Uh, it'll be a wonderful uh, joint venture this year, and, and we won't have the rental costs at the Wallace Elementary School, which we've usually had, so that'll be helpful during our construction time. Um, but more than that, I just want you to be in prayer about this ministry. We've seen over the past few years, children's lives changed for the kingdom of God. We've seen kids come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and that's the most exciting, thrilling thing that can happen in a ministry like this. And it's been one of the most fruitful ministries I've been a part of here. You, you can stand up here and preach, but you know, uh, working with a small group of children on Wednesday nights and seeing them put their faith in the Lord Jesus and their simple childlike faith and then grow and learn about Christ for the first time, uh, nothing beats that. You know, I, I thought a few years ago when I was teaching adult Sunday school that you know, that was just a, a thrill you know, for me. I just loved digging into doctrine and teaching that stuff. But, but then when we switched over to small groups and I got involved in Awana, uh, I found that to be much more rewarding uh, to see children come to faith in Christ. And, and I would just want to ask that each of you pray for the leaders. Um, and, and leaders, there's about a dozen of us here and five from all of it. Uh, I would like you to seek out two people in this congregation, at least two, to be praying for you every week uh, for Awana, for your ministry. You need to have at least a couple people praying for you uh, to, to have an effective ministry, I believe. And um, This Wednesday night, we're going to have a walkthrough with the leaders at all of it. It's next week, we're going to start on the 19th. But this Wednesday night, if you're a leader uh, or if you're interested, uh, you've got to come this Wednesday. Let us know this morning and come this Wednesday. We're going to walk through uh, the, the night, how it works, the roles. Uh, so if you, if you want to join and be a part of this ministry, uh, let me or, or someone in Iwana know today. Um, I'm just going to commit our Iwana ministry to the Lord in prayer as a, as a congregation, and then we'll uh, get into Philippians chapter 3. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the privilege of being ambassadors of the gospel of Christ and how significant it is to invest our time into our children and our youth, uh, how wonderful it is and joyful it is when we see kids put their faith and trust in Christ as their Savior. Lord, we pray for a fruitful ministry in Awana this year and junior high and high school youth groups, that children would turn to the Lord, that they would open their minds and their hearts to receive Christ, and that children who are believers would grow in their knowledge of Christ and uh, grow up with a Christian worldview. And, and Lord, some of these kids come and don't come from a good home, and they uh, aren't very loved and, and don't receive Christian education at home at all. And, and Lord, uh, bring those children to us, Lord. We want to minister to them. We want to be a part of their lives and love them and provide a safe, loving place for them to be once a week where we can show them your love and teach them your ways and your truth. Uh, if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who would want to get involved in this church, doesn't know quite how, Lord, may you uh, give them a burden and a, 
and a heart for children on Wednesday nights. They can come to Awana. Uh, so we commend our, our youth ministries to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, sorry I don't have slides. I was, I was on vacation, but this, that'll be okay. Preachers did without them for hundreds of years, right? Uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to open up with a few verses in Matthew chapter 16 to start with. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And this morning we're going to look at one of Jesus' disciples who denied himself, took up his cross, and followed Christ. He gave up everything for Christ. He gave everything in exchange for his soul. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's just one of the greatest examples of this, and I want to share his testimony here in Philippians chapter 3, of leaving everything, everything that he once thought was valuable in life, to follow Christ. And I believe this section of Scripture, which you know, was written to believers a couple thousand years ago, will really be an encouragement to us in our faith. Uh, to surrender ourselves to the Lord's will for us. And, and there's a couple key words in this passage, and, and I hope you pick up on that. He says, press on. And uh, I hope that we will be encouraged to press on in our Christian lives until the race of life is finished. Uh, let's read the passage together. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 14. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but it, for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul starts out saying, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Joy is one of the main themes of the book of Philippians. Paul is full of joy, and he wants to encourage the believers at Philippi with his joy. It's a, and it's really a remarkable sort of joy, because normally our happiness is, is affected by sorrow, tragedy, Poverty, sickness, sadness, but the kind of joy Paul is talking about isn't affected by our circumstances. 
you know, consider the situation Paul was in. As it's been mentioned in previous weeks, he was writing this letter to the church at Philippi from prison. Uh, it's one of four New Testament books, which are called his prison epistles. Can you think of them all? There's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, one more, Philemon. So he wrote four letters from prison. Those are his prison epistles. Uh, and he's talking about a Christian joy. It's a joy that rides high over the storms of life. You know, it's not necessarily feelings of happiness. That's what we normally consider joy. But because of our trust in the sovereignty of God, we can always experience a contentment, a peace that fills our soul. We know that in the end, everything will be okay. We can trust in God's sovereignty to ultimately work out everything to our good in the end. And so that thought comforts us. It carries us through life. It fills our hearts with a supernatural kind of joy. That's what Paul's talking about here. And, and no matter where we are in life, no matter how hard it is, we can always, as he says, rejoice in the Lord, no matter what we're going through. Well, now he's going to give him a little bit of a warning here. He, you see this in most of his letters. He says, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. We might ask, what's he, what's he talking about? Who is he talking about here? And can you know a little bit of the background of the situation these believers were in? Um, and you see the concern Paul has for them to watch out, beware uh, for false teachings and false teachers. And this church in Philippi was no exception. There was a teaching going around at that time that concerned Paul, and he wanted these believers to be on alert for it, and he wanted them to recognize the false teachers who were teaching it. And uh, he says he never gets tired of warning them to keep them safe from their teaching. I mean, that's the heart of a pastor there, the heart of an elder, the heart of a missionary. Never gets tired of warning the people to keep them safe from false teaching. And uh, first of all, he, he refers to these false teachers as dogs. Uh, most dogs in the first century weren't your uh, cute pets that could do tricks and, and snuggle up and do, you know, say, I, I think I saw a video on Funniest Videos that, where dog could say, I love you, over and over again. And, uh, and it sounded pretty real. But you know, dogs in the first century wouldn't do that for you. Uh, they were mangy sort of beasts. They would run wild, prowl around in packs, sometimes attack people, uh, feeding on garbage. So that kind of gives you a picture of first century dogs for you. And they were unclean to the Jew. And the term dogs was frequently used by the Jews to describe the Gentiles as a derogatory term. Uh, so Paul turns the tables around here, and he applies the term dogs to these Jewish false teachers. Now, just as dogs were unclean and filthy, so were the false teachers. Just as dogs were vicious and dangerous to be avoided, so were the false teachers who were teaching salvation by works. And, you know, these, these false teachers, to give you an idea, they probably came into the church uh, looking like a believer. You know, that's how they come in. They did enough of the right things, said enough of the right things to be accept, accepted by most of the believers. And, but listen to what 2 Peter 2.1 says. He, he talks about false teachers, and Peter says, there's false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Notice that word secretly. You know, a false teacher doesn't come in announcing, I'm a false teacher. Uh, they don't stand up front and spew out a bunch of false doctrine that's obviously false doctrine, but they they come in secretly, say enough of the right things to get accepted and attention, and, and they secretly bring in their destructive heresies. 
And Paul refers to them as well in the verse here as evil workers. They were a group of men who, taught, who they, they thought they were doing a great work for God by trying to put Christians under the Jewish law and taught that righteousness was had by keeping the law of Moses and by faithfully carrying out all the Jewish rituals and ceremonies, especially circumcision. And so in, in reality, Paul's saying they were doing the work of the evil ones, so they were evil workers. And, and he even calls them the mutilation here. It's a sarcastic way, I think, of describing their attitude towards circumcision. They, you know, they insisted a person be circumcised in order to be saved. You know, circumcision, you look in the Old Testament and you see how it was the essential to the Jewish people because it was what distinguished them as belonging to God. Uh, you know, God made that covenant with Abraham and he asked that every male born be circumcised on the eighth day. And that was a sign of their belonging to God, the Jewish people, God's people. But you know, they only focused on the outward, the physical, the, not the spiritual meaning of it. And there was always a spiritual meaning to it but they missed that. In Judaism, they thought it was essential to be saved. But they missed the reality that it was a picture of the sinful part of us being cut away. That's what needed to be removed from people's hearts. If you didn't have that, the outward symbol meant nothing. It's like you could be baptized today as a Christian, but if you didn't have the inward reality, that baptism would mean nothing. And so Paul is saying they're the mutilation here. They, they didn't have true spiritual life. They mutilated themselves, but there was no inward spiritual reality. So, and then he says the true circumcision group is made up of everyone who worships God in the Spirit, rejoicing in Christ Jesus, and puts no confidence in their own efforts. You see three things there. He identifies true believers in three ways. He says, first of all, that true believers worship in the Spirit of God. True worshipers are devoted to God. There's, there's no rival for, in our lives for our attention and our devotion if we're worshiping in the Spirit of God. And, and it's more than singing hymns, more than participating in a worship service, worshiping in the Spirit of God. The, the essence of worship is living a life of obedient service to God. It's like what it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2 about offering, presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is our spiritual service of worship. It's a lifestyle. Secondly, he says true believers glory in Christ Jesus. True believers give the credit for all that they are and all that they have to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Galatians 6.14, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have nothing else to boast about other than what Christ Jesus has done for us in our lives. And you think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, you know, for by grace, we are saved through faith and not of ourselves, not of works. Not of works, right? Lest any man should boast. And so we have nothing to boast about but only glory in Christ Jesus. And another sign of a true believer is you put no confidence in the flesh, he says. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We, we don't put any confidence in our human effort for salvation. Um, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing, says John 6:63. You know, there's a great doctrine taught throughout the Bible called total depravity, which basically means that we were born into sin. Uh, there's nothing we can do to earn or merit salvation. We, we just can't come to God on our own. It's not in our nature. We're, we're, we're lost in sin. We're dead in our sins, the Apostle Paul says in other places. And so only by the grace of God can anyone come to salvation. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. 
You know, and after we're saved, uh, we aren't sanctified or made more Christ-like. We don't earn more favor with God by keeping to a legalistic set of rules. And that's kind of what we're encountering here. You know, just as we're saved by grace, we're also sanctified by that. By, by what? Keeping all the laws perfectly? Uh, that's not what Paul says. He, he's, you know, the Ten Commandments are, are God's moral requirements for us even today, and they're good for us. Uh, even in Galatians 3, it says the commandments point us to Christ. They're like a school teacher bringing us to Christ. But there's also a lot of other man-made rules that become legalistic in, our, in Christian circles and churches. And uh, just for a minute here, legalism is judging another person's spirituality by your set of rules. You know, legalism would say you, ha you have to do or don't do certain things in order to be saved. And once you are saved, you have to follow a certain set of rules to be a mature Christian. You know, legalism really appears more spiritual because on the outside it looks good. Um, goes on in many forms today in Christian churches. I, I was trying to think of a couple examples, you know, maybe may, may petty things, but, uh, you know, dress up on a certain way for Sunday morning or uh, only read the Bible from a certain translation or only take uh, communion a certain way and worship in a certain way. Well, you know, it's certainly not bad to dress up on Sunday. It's certainly not bad to read from your favorite translation or worship in a certain way, take communion in a certain way. But it becomes bad when someone judges another person's spirituality if they don't do it that way. Then it becomes legalism. Well, Paul said, you know, these false teachers were kind of boasting about themselves. They had it right. You know, they wanted the believers in Philippi to be circumcised and come into the Jewish law and do everything that way. But Paul says if you want to play that game, kind of for the sake of argument here, he's not boasting about it, but he says if anyone could boast about his background and, and the way he grew up and the laws he lived under, it would be myself, Paul. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. The false teachers would boast in their heritage and in their achievements. You know, they believe their backgrounds really put them ahead in God's eyes. So for the sake of argument, Paul's going to play that game, and he, and he says, if anyone could have had confidence in his own efforts and background to be saved, it would have been Paul. And he had it all from a Jewish perspective. He says he had the ancestry. You know, he, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Jew by birth. He was a, of the stock of Israel, which is God's chosen earthly people at that time, and of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, you think of the tribe of Benjamin in the Old Testament. It was the tribe that gave Israel its first king, King Saul. It was the tribe that gave Israel a great leader in Mordecai. In the book of Esther, he was one of the greatest leaders ever. Uh, you know, I got into uh, Ancestry this year, Ancestry.com. And uh, tracing back my relatives several generations on both my parents' side and my wife's parents' side and piecing bits of information here together is kind of a fun jigsaw puzzle type of thing. And, um, you know, one of my mom's ancestors was one of the most important figures at the time the state of Iowa was founded. Uh, Marquis de Lett, and a Frenchman, it sounds like. I visited the graves of my third great-grandparents this summer at a family reunion. I was looking at those gravestones, and uh, I saw some pictures at the family reunion of them. Uh, practically, you know, born into the church here, born and raised at Cornerstone Community Church, you know, 
So it's kind of interesting to see where the faith comes into the line too, those who are believers. And you know, Paul is saying he, he had the right ritual of circumcision on the right day. He was of the right race, one of one of the most prominent tribes. Uh, he had the ancestry. He had it all go for him, all going for him ancestry-wise. But he's gonna say that rituals and ceremonies and racial heritage and family status have nothing to do with salvation. He says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, he, he was part of the nation that held on to the language and customs. He was a Pharisee, and, and that was important. They were kind of an elite, influential, highly uh, respected group of spiritual leaders among the Jewish people. Uh, they believed in, the re in resurrection. Uh, he says concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. You know, you read through the New Testament, and you see this man, Paul, wasn't such a great Christian at one time. He was Saul of Tarsus, and... As Saul of Tarsus, he went out to destroy the church, you know, going into homes, dragging out Christians, carrying them off to prison, casting his vote against them when the trials came and having them put to death. Uh, he was a very violent, aggressive man. Thought, he thought what he was doing was furthering the kingdom of God, but in reality, he was destroying. Uh, Morality-wise, he said concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. Uh, could we say we were blameless? I, I don't know. Maybe not. That probably doesn't mean perfect, but whenever he violated any part of the law, Paul would have made sure to bring the sacrifice that was required. You know, he kept all the rules of Judaism to the letter. He was just blameless. You know, he had the birth, the pedigree. He was orthodox. He was zealous. He, he was personally righteous in his eyes. So the Solitarsus, which we now know as the Apostle Paul, just an outstanding man, right? At least outwardly. But he says, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. He thought he had gained everything in life, but he counted it all as loss. He says, yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, that's what he thought before, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. You know, as long as Paul was trusting in his background and his accomplishments, he could never have been saved. But when they met Christ, they no longer meant anything to him because he found Christ to be sufficient for everything that he needed in life, for righteousness. I, uh, I work with computers and I've had some accounting background and um, I should probably have my parents come up and do this part, but you know, uh, CPA, but let's categorize all our background and accomplishments in life for a minute. You know, let's take what Paul was talking about here, and if you can picture a balance sheet where you have assets and liabilities, is this too hard to think about on Sunday morning? Okay, but you know, let's put a, let's put all of our ancestry, our nationality, our culture, our prestige, education, parents' faith, church background, all those religious accomplishments on one side of the balance sheet. We're going to put them all together. You know, and, and no matter which side we put it on, it would seem that no matter what you put on the other side, it wouldn't balance, right? But nothing could match up to that stack of accomplishments and background. But it really, it really wouldn't balance. But in light of what the Bible says about having righteousness through faith in Christ here, all those seemingly positive assets we're going to put on the liabilities side of the balance sheet. Paul says he counts, he counts them as rubbish. Maybe there's some other fun translations of that word, you know, garbage, dung, manure. 
Uh, he counts all those accomplishments as refuse, as garbage, as nothing to him. All he wanted was he needed, he needed just one asset when he met Christ. He realized he needed just one thing on the asset side of his balance sheet to give him eternal life in God's eyes, to come out with a positive net worth in God's eyes. And that was the righteousness of Christ Jesus. That's all you need. It outweighs anything else you can accomplish in your spiritual life. You cannot come to God and be saved apart from the righteousness, which is in Christ alone. That's the only thing you need on the asset side of God's balance sheet. Everything else counts as liabilities. Uh, now, I do want to say that background achievements are helpful uh, in preparing you for ministry and preparing you for life to be a useful tool in God's hands. God uses our, uses our experiences and background to shape us and use us for his unique purposes. But, and you know, we can look back on accomplishments and things that have happened in the past and be very thankful for them, be grateful to God for them, but we don't trust in them. Uh, we don't glory in them. We don't trust in them for our salvation. It's not about what we can do for him but it's all about what he has done for us. We simply believe it. And we trust and commit our lives to him, depending solely on whose background, not ours. We depend on Christ's background, the perfect one, the righteous one, and only on his accomplishment, not our accomplishments, but his accomplishment for eternal life. That's all we need to be right before God. And so Paul, he, he turned his back on his father's heritage, his mother's religion, his own personal achievements in Judaism, to gain Christ. And he says he suffered the loss of all things. You know, he would have been disinherited by his relatives, disowned by his former friends, persecuted by his fellow countrymen for his faith. But, you know, it didn't matter. He had Christ. It was better than anything else. Nothing else mattered. You know, if you're a student in school here this morning and facing peer pressure to do what it takes to fit in and have some friends, I, I know what that's like, uh, just remember that there is one Jesus Christ, who offers eternal life. And he wasn't accepted. He didn't fit in. But you know what he was concerned about? He was only concerned about doing the Father's will. What would please the Father? And so hopefully that's an encouragement to you if you're a student. You know, it's hard to find some Christian friends in school. or you know, it's, it's a hard time, I know. But, you know, many believers also around the world have gone through a lot more suffering and difficulties for their faith in Christ. And um, Jesus Christ, most of all, went through the greatest difficulty of all to please the Father in going to the cross. And, and so we can take comfort in that. Uh, it's, it's a joy to belong to and live for Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, everything comes into perspective when we realize that. Uh, when we realize the gospel truth that man needs righteousness in order to stand before God in favor, but we can't produce it. So in grace, God gives us his own righteousness. Uh, that's what the gospel is about. To those who receive his Son... As their Lord and Savior, they receive God's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That basically says Christ took the punishment we deserved to give us his righteousness. That's an amazing thing. And in Paul, he, he's not content to leave it at there. He's not content to just have righteousness in Christ. He says... I want to know him, verse 10. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul wanted to know Christ in an intimate way. He wanted to become more Christ-like. He wanted to know the power that raised the Lord from the dead in his life and testimony. Wouldn't you like to know Christ 
better and the power of his resurrection in your life and in your testimony? I would. Would you like to know his resurrection power in your family life and in your marriage? You know, being married 12 years now, Jessalyn and I have started to see some of our peers' marriages fail, and it's, uh, it's kind of heart-wrenching and tragic to see that happen. Relationships falling apart, couples separating, and, you know, maybe you're struggling in your marriage, I don't know. Uh, every marriage has some difficulties, of course, but I just want you to listen here. The same power that was in the resurrection of Christ. Christ was raised from the dead, conquering sin, death, hell, Satan. It was one of the most powerful accomplishments ever. It's core to the Christian faith. And that same power that was in the resurrection is available to us as believers to heal, to strengthen any relationship or marriage. Paul also wanted to follow Christ in suffering and death. For him, there was no other path. He, he knew that his Lord was persecuted, rejected, crucified, and he had once been one of the leaders of persecuting his followers. And now that he belonged to Christ, he couldn't live any other way. He, he had such a strong desire and expectation for his own resurrection that he wasn't even concerned about the sufferings ahead on the road to glory. You know, it doesn't mean we have to seek suffering. It doesn't mean we have to seek death to be like Christ. That was Paul's path, though. You know, if the, if the Lord suffered, because the Lord suffered, he wanted to suffer. Because the Lord died to please the Father, he wanted to die. And he was looking forward to the resurrection. He wanted to follow Christ in everything. You know, going back to marriage for a second, um, you've been through some hard times in life. Maybe not just the marriage and other, other times, you know. But you know those difficulties uh, those sufferings can draw you closer, you and your spouse closer to each other and to God. Um, Paul wanted to experience that closeness, that knowledge of Christ through his difficulties. You know, I, I think back in the past four years, and you know, wouldn't have imagined some of the things that happened to us would have happened. Um, you know, a few years ago we had a stillborn girl at six months along, and a couple of years ago a boy born with cystic fibrosis, and you know, it's, we had no idea. It's not, it's not exactly what you. Uh, how imagine things going for a couple years there, but uh, through those difficulties, you know, we came to know the strength and peace of God in a way we hadn't before. And through difficulties or suffering, especially suffering for your faith, which we really don't face a whole lot of here in this country, but believers around the world do, those difficulties and those sufferings draw us closer to Christ. We know him in a more intimate way. And uh, believers in Africa who are suffering for their faith, being persecuted, even killed for their faith, uh, homes burnt out, but by other faiths, uh, they depend on Christ a lot. You know, they, they, through those difficulties and sufferings, they know Christ in a way they probably wouldn't have known before. Uh, there's a real blessing in knowing Christ through suffering. Uh, I love Paul's statement, though. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. doesn't mean he's hoping he would get to experience resurrection to eternal life. That was a certainty. But what he meant was he was willing to give anything God asked of him and pressing on towards that goal. And we too should be willing to give of ourselves anything God asks of us. You know, if he is the Lord and Savior, and he is, then anything he asks of me, I should be willing to give to him. At first, when I'm a new believer, I might not know everything he wants me to do, but if, when I hear of something that Christ wants me to do, there should be a willingness in my heart to do whatever he asks of me. It's not the same for all of us, but if you're a true believer, there is that desire in your heart 
to obey and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there isn't a willingness to obey and follow Christ, I must examine my heart to see whether I'm in the faith or not. Well, Paul says he wants to press on, pressing toward the goal. Verse 12, not that I have already attained. He's not there. You think after 30 years of being a Christian at this point, Paul would have attained it. He's probably one of the most righteous, godliest men ever, right? But even Paul's not satisfied at this point. He says, I'm not already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended or arrived, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wanted to be clear that he had not obtained the prize. He had not arrived as a Christian. You know, no one ever does. No one ever reaches spiritual perfection this side of heaven. The Apostle Paul was still pursuing Christ-likeness after 30 years with all his might. And I think he might have been a sports fan, you know. When you read through his letters to the churches in the New Testament, you see many references to the Christian life being run as a race, to being like a boxing match, to being a battle, uh, run in such a way to win the prize. So I think Paul was a sports fan, and he probably watched the Olympic Games back then. And with the, you know, the Olympics in mind a month ago, uh, you watch those runners. I was impressed. I watched those runners line up along the starting blocks, focused on their goal. And the goal is the finish line, hopefully a gold medal. The prize is only given to the winners. And if you watch them, you watch their eyes, their stance, when they're just about to take off. And they're not looking up in the stands. They're not looking down at their feet. They're not waving, hi, Mom. Uh, they're not looking down the line at the other runners, Usain Bolt, you know, could you imagine him goofing off saying, hey, wasn't that great how I won that gold medal four years ago? <laughs> you know, it, it'd be a, a goofball for that. And uh, no, they're, they're, you look at their eyes, you look at their faces, the way they're postured, they're deep in concentration. They're totally focused. They're about ready to give their maximum effort in a way to win the prize, to reach the goal. You know, and the goal in the Christian life is the finish of life's race, and the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the prize includes righteousness, it includes salvation, Christ-likeness, being co-heirs with Christ, a home in heaven. It's a prize beyond your wildest imagination, much better than a gold medal. Something more satisfying than anything in life. It's worth it all. It's a race worth giving your life to. And Paul knew he wasn't perfected yet, and you can read about his deep personal struggle with sin in Romans 7. But he had a goal and he had a purpose and an aim and direction in life, and he kept his eyes on that goal, the completion of his righteousness one day in heaven. And so he says, I want to press on. And so he was pressing on to the purpose the Lord Jesus had for him, that it might be fulfilled, which was to go out for him, was to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And that's also for us, but he had a special calling. Uh, he had one purpose, forgetting his sins and failures, forgetting his privileges, achievements, and successes, and only focusing on the work God still wanted him to do with the rest of his life. You know, no matter what your sins and failures are in the past, no matter what your achievements and background are, forget those things. Focus on the rest of your life. There's a goal ahead. There's a race to be run, and it must be finished well. You know, whether you've been a Christian 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 60 years, Hey, Paul was one of the most mature Christians ever, and he said he hadn't attained it, and he was still running full speed for the end. There's, we can all admit 
And I'll be humble about our own condition if we really think about it and say, I have some running to do. I have a mission and purpose and a goal to reach, no matter where I'm at. You know, I should never be looking back. Where's the runner's eyes when they're running? They're fixed on the goal. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That says we're to keep our eyes fixed in this race on Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. If we're looking back, if we're looking around what other churches are doing, and that might hold us back, I don't know. We need to keep our eyes fixed in one direction in this Christian life, and that's on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who ran the greatest race. Well, I think if we really adopted Paul's mentality here, we'd probably say, okay, whatever happened in my past was bad or great, whatever. Um, I praise God for those great, good things, but I'm going to forget about it. I'm going to focus on what's ahead. I'm going to give my maximum effort to what God has for me in my future. I'm going to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus with whatever life I have left. And as a church, we're going to give our maximum effort to bring people in and see them come to Christ and really grow. You know, because a growing church is a healthy church, effectively reaching the lost with the gospel. And that's the only thing we can't do better in heaven than on earth, right? Evangelize, see lost people come to Christ. We have a great commission to go out teaching and baptizing in the name of Christ. And I want to encourage us, brothers and sisters, to press on, as Paul says, press on towards that goal. And if you don't remember anything else about the sermon or the background of the Judaizers who were teaching that false doctrine, okay, but remember two words here, press on. Block that somewhere in your, in your brain in that special place where you keep those special memories and uh, don't, don't let it fall out. There's two words here, press on. Press on in the Christian life. Run the race well. Run the race in such a way as to win the race. The goal being Christ-likeness, salvation, heaven, joy unspeakable. And, and that's a certainty for us, uh, but we're also called to run towards it. Run towards it. Race towards it in a way to win the prize. At the uh, foot of one of the Swiss Alps is a marker honoring a man who fell to his death attempting the ascent. And the marker gives his name in this brief epitaph. He died climbing. The epitaph of every Christian should be that they died climbing the upward path toward the prize of Christ-likeness. Die climbing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. and uh, He went through the ultimate race, gave his life on the cross as a great sacrifice to bearing the punishment for our sins that we might have his righteousness and, and have a prize ahead for us of salvation and Christ-likeness and Lord, just, if there's any cold hearts here this morning, stir up those hearts and uh, put in us a deep desire, a burning desire and passion to run the race hard to the very end. Maybe we've been running the race for a long time and uh, maybe slowing down a bit. I don't know. But Lord, if, if there's anyone here who's not running the race well, uh, I pray that they would confess any sins and uh, get right with you. Practice the spiritual disciplines we preached on the past couple months of reading the word and praying and evangelizing and uh, giving and uh, all those wonderful things, Lord, that draw us into 
a life of worship to you. Um, but put us in a place to receive your blessings as well. And Lord, we just thank you for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we long for heaven. This is not our home. And yet while we remain here, Lord, you've given us each a mission and a purpose. And for each of us, it might be different. But one thing's all the same, that we are to go out into the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the mission you've laid on us here as a, as a leadership and church is to uh, see people everywhere come into a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. Through a one or a junior high or high school or our adult ministries, Lord, we, we pray for your blessings on our ministries this year and that we would see much fruit from it. That we'd see people rededicating their lives and running the race well and people coming into our fellowship and joining us in the race, that we might grow as a church. Uh, now, Lord, as we're going to take communion, we are just so thankful in our hearts for the righteousness Christ has given us. We, we take the bread to remind ourselves of that body that was given for us on the cross, the juice or the cup reminding us of the blood shed for us, his life blood given for us that we might be covered by his righteousness. Lord, we have nothing else besides you. Whom have we in heaven but you? Our background, our achievements, our, you know, we might have grown, in the, grown up in the best Christian home and grown up in the best church. It uh, doesn't matter, Lord. We all individually have to come to faith in Christ only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as the song's playing and the believers come up, Lord, let it be with the heart of thanksgiving. Uh, thank you, Lord. May, may those be the words on our mind and lips as we come up to take this bread and cup. Uh, so thankful, Lord, for putting us in this race. And, and Lord, please help us. We, apart from you, we can do nothing. We just ask for your help and your mercies to help us run the race well. Commit ourselves to you as a body of believers and as individuals in Christ. In Jesus' name.